Welcome to The Bit, a podcast from Upstream, the international oil and gas newspaper. This is the week of January 20th. My name is Luke Johnson. I write for Upstream, and we've been, well, a little slow out of the gates in 2017, I guess it's fair to say. It's been tricky to get everyone scheduled aligned, but here we are for the first podcast of the year. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year, Luke. Happy New Year. Uh, to my right is Upstream's Gulf of Mexico correspondent, Kat Schmidt. Hey, Kat. Hey, Luke. And across from the table is our Houston bureau chief, Noah Brenner. How you doing, Noah? So far, so good, but it's early in the podcast, so. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, well, we're not going to try to recap the last month since we uh, last recorded one of these. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time remembering what happened last week, uh, let alone the last four weeks. Um, but we are going to hop around to a few different regions that we cover um, and talk about some of the latest news that we're following, including ExxonMobil's continued success down in Guyana. But we're going to start this week in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, where Cat unearthed a tasty bit of news about the merry-go-round of a discovery known as buckskin, where it seems like everyone takes a turn. Uh, just to bring us all up to speed on buckskin... It was discovered by Repsol in 2009, and then Chevron took over as the operator and had planned to build a standalone facility there, presumably along the lines of the Jack St. Malo semi-sub. Um, but they couldn't make the economics work, and they bowed out early last year, at which point Repsol uh, put their operator's cap back on and started making noise about reviving the project. But now, as Kat has reported, a new name has entered the fray privately held log exploration confirmed to us that it is now the operator of buckskin with a 55% stake and is now presumably working on its own development scheme. So that's where we'll pick it up. Um, Kat, this is, I would say, a pretty surprising development in the life of buckskin. Um, I guess not so much that Repsol was looking at its options, um, but that log would be interested in taking the reins here. Um, I mean, this is a project that's pretty far offshore in ultra deep water, not to mention a lower tertiary field, um, and none of which, you know, really fits with Log's MO, at least up to this point. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a departure. Log made its name in areas like Mississippi Canyon on developments like a Delta House in Houdat. Um, they've, they've looked at pretty well-known areas and have carried out development in a simplified and low-cost way. And um, it's been a perspective that's been valuable at a time when everyone's complaining about over-engineering and escalating development costs. Um, but Mux, excuse me, Buckskin is in much deeper water. Uh, Delta House, for instance, is about in uh, 4,500 feet of water, whereas Buckskin is closer to 7,000 feet. So simply by virtue of the deeper water depth, uh, subsea components are going to need to be stronger, bigger, and by extension also cost more. Um, the play type will also be different. Uh, the lower tertiary, um, different from the Miocene, but you know, much, much of the geological heavy lifting has already been done by you know, the prior operators. Um, they'd also be seeing a different type of partner, um, a major, rather than their fellow independents. But in a way, I mean, people's budgets are constricted. Um, some of these big international majors are backing away. Um, other players have said we're done with the Gulf entirely. So in a way, who is left and why not them? <laughs> Good point. Uh, all right, so uh, Buckskin and then Moccasin, which was always kind of, you know, they, they, were, they had been talked about together as being developed together, at least uh, when Chevron was the operator. 
um, they kind of went from being candidates to anchor, a, you know, a standalone facility to potential tiebacks to Anadarko's Lucius Spar, which is there uh, just about 10 miles away or so, um, to being kind of <laughs> mired in this purgatory of revolving operators. Um, so a, a lot of thought has been put into these discoveries already, um, but do we have any idea what Log might be able to do as far as a development or what they might be thinking moving forward? Well, uh, Lucius uh, certainly hasn't gone anywhere and has long been assumed to where to be where Buckskin might end up uh, as a tieback. Um, but Lucius has been producing over its nameplate capacity for, for a while now. Uh, the nameplate is about 80,000 barrels uh, of oil equivalent per day. It's been producing about 100,000. Um, so, you know, that would suggest that there's not a whole lot of excess capacity for something like Buckskin. Um, you know, which could still be a decently sized field. Um, Anadarko also has uh, the Phobos discovery that's uh, pretty close to Lucius southward. Um, you know, they've had a good appraisal there, and Lucius could potentially be the possible host. So, you know, we, we definitely uh, could see some consideration of debottlenecking at Lucius, which has been done on, you know, any number of other facilities. Um, but they, they may run into some limits there because they have. Um, extra kit involved uh, to handle the Hadrian South gas volumes, uh, which is another tieback uh, to that discovery. So, so there's some questions about how much how much space is really there. Mm. Yeah, I guess the the big attraction of of Lucius always was <laughs> it's the only semblance of production infrastructure anywhere near Buckskin. Um, I mean, it's a very re- remote location there in the southern Keithley Canyon. Um, and there's just nothing else around other than Lucius, so it's always been kind of a foregone conclusion that uh, Buckskin would tie back to Lucius, assuming there was no new facility built there. Um, so, but, I mean, if, as you say, Lucius is at uh, or above capacity already um, and possibly out of the picture, we're not saying it is out of the picture, but, I mean, it's, uh, you know, could that open the door for one of these uh, super economic floaters that Log is kind of famous for? Um, I'm going to acknowledge first we're in the realm of uh, rampant speculation, but um, this is a situation where operators have found themselves faced with something similar, where the discoveries in a single area um, have outstripped the capacity of the original infrastructure that they had foreseen for the field. So, you know, for instance, Shell with Olympus at its Mars field or BP with Mad Dog 2. Um, So, I mean, the question that, you know, observers and most likely Log is asking is, you know, is there enough resource to fill a second facility? Um, The Chevron tieback was to be 30,000 barrels per day from both Buckskin and Moccasin. Um, and, you know, we don't know how much uh, Phobos would represent or what kind of running room is left in Lucius. There might be an opportunity to backfill um, and production down the line. Um, you know, those are all big question marks. Uh, Log has said that its uh, development, the way it thinks about the development, uh, does not require as large of an accumulation to be profitable because it keeps its costs down, um, you know, but it's not really clear how that would whether that would apply in the same way to this uh, much d- deeper field. And, um, you know, log is privately held, so we don't have the same level of financial detail that we might um, from someone else uh, in regard to thinking about these numbers. 
while we're just rampantly speculating here, um, could we see maybe one of these OptiX uh, facilities, uh, OptiX semi-subs that uh, is producing from Delta House? Would that be kind of a, would you think that that is a front runner for a possible development here? Well, I can tell you that Exmar would be absolutely delighted to sell them one for that purpose. Um, and their materials claim that the facility is water depth independent. Uh, but this has also been sort of an emerging niche um, of production infrastructure for exactly this type of discovery, where it is perhaps, relatively speaking, a smaller volume, um, but is fairly remote and doesn't necessarily have a ton of infrastructure nearby. So should should that route be chosen, um, there are multiple options that could uh, fit And what is the design framework. of Houdat? Is that, is that, that's not an OptiX also, is it? It is derived from a similar template. Okay. All right, well, that's a great story, Kat. Thanks a lot for that. You can read the whole thing at upstreamonline.com, and the bit will be back right after this. Welcome back to the bit. We turn now to offshore Guyana, where ExxonMobil recently discovered even more oil, believe it or not. Guyana, of course, was one of the most exciting offshore stories of 2016 after Exxon announced its Lisa discovery, a billion barrel find that was not only the largest oil discovery of the past couple of years, it might be one of the biggest hits this decade. And now they've found more, both at Lisa and at a new prospect called Payara. So let's start with a new one, Noah. Uh, you have been following all things Guyana lately, and we're watching this Payara well quite closely. So uh, could you just first maybe give us the nuts and bolts? You know, where was this well drilled and what did they find exactly? Sure, definitely. Um, so the well was drilled. It was a little over 18,000 feet total depth in 6,600 feet of water or so, 6,700 feet of water. Um, offshore Guyana on the Stabrook block, so it's the same sprawling, very, very large block uh, where that's also home to the Lisa Discovery. The well hit 95 feet of net pay in similar Cretaceous Age reservoirs as the Lisa Discovery. It was sort of seen as one of these many you know, 10 or 20 to 30 lookalikes that the companies, uh, both partner Hess and operator ExxonMobil, have said that they see on this block. It's only located about 10 miles to the northwest of the initial Lisa Discovery well. Uh, it was really interesting. The, this well spud on November 12th. They TD'd it on December 2nd. So you're looking at less than 30 days to drill a significant offshore well. I mean, it's pretty incredible how efficiently they got this down. Then after TDing it on the 2nd, they sidetracked it twice. Um, now, this was a well that, as you had said, you know, I'd been looking at it quite closely, had some inquiries out there. It certainly just due to the, the length of time that the Stina Karen drill ship was on location. It looked to be a discovery, um, but certainly ExxonMobil you know, just, just came out and said it, um, which... Uh, they don't often do. They don't often do. Yeah, I, th I, I think the fact that they're talking about it at all is significant. Yeah. And so how does that compare to what they have at Lisa? Well, it's certainly smaller, I would say, you know, 95 feet of net pay versus something like 295 feet of net pay at the original Lisa Discovery. You can't simply extrapolate, okay, it's, you know, one-third the net pay, so it's going to be one-third of the, you know, roughly 1.2 billion barrels or something like that at Lisa, um, because the reservoir quality does matter. On the other hand, 
reservoir quality so far offshore Guyana, even at the skipjack dry hole, we understand was, was likely pretty good. Um, and so there's maybe maybe less of a, you know, it's not like a outboard, outboard lower tertiary well or something like that where you've known the reservoir to be tight. Um, I think it's probably okay to to assume it's got some decent reservoir quality there. You know, I have seen resource estimates that ranged from something like 300 million to 500 million barrels of oil. That was from Wood Mackenzie. I mean, even if you put it at, say, lower than that, um, you know, it should be tiebackable. It's only 10, 10 miles away to the northwest. Um, so I think there's definitely got to be a lower hurdle for, decla- for commerciality. Now, there hasn't been any declaration of commerciality on this yet. At some point, Exxon will have to do that. It's required by, um, by Guyana's regulatory regime. They are planning a well test, could be underway as we speak, um, but my understanding is they have the, the permits to flare and uh, and that that well test, which would be carried out by the Stina Karen, um, will sort of determine some of the next, well, both the size and some of the next steps in terms of how they they go about that. Uh, but certainly the you know, sidetracking it twice off an initial discovery well, it would indicate that they're looking for for the flanks of that structure and and getting some better idea on on you know whether the reservoir is contiguous, whether it's you know a continuous um, properties and things like that. Okay, well, we've reported a lot on Exxon's development plans at Lisa. Uh, they filed a development plan with the EPA down there, and uh, they, the plan is to bring in a converted FPSO. They're already starting to award contracts for that. But could this new discovery at Payara have a significant impact on, on their plans and how they might proceed? You know, I think it definitely could. The FPSO that, that is in their development plan is a sort of base case average production of 100,000 barrels per day, I believe, with a nameplate capacity of 120,000 barrels per day. You know, if you've got a another significant find that is is easily within reach of Lisa, um, you know, is that something, I guess the question would, would sort of hinge on, on both Payara and Lisa in terms of how much oil is there and how do you need to manage that reservoir from a standpoint of things like gas injection and things like that. Um, you know, how are you, how are you going to develop it? Do you want to go with potentially a larger FPSO? Do you want to do two FPSOs? Um, you know, Wood McKenzie had pointed out that they believe Pyara is going to take its own FPSO. Um, they also had a slightly higher estimate for um, for the capacity for the Lisa FPSO. They were up at 180,000 a day, which which is well above uh, the indications on Exxon's development plan. You know, so there's definitely, it, it throws another complication into it. From Exxon's perspective, it's a great, it's a good complication to have. Um, but I'm wondering is, you know, we within Upstream have speculated that Lisa itself could take two FPSOs, no problem, especially if they're these smaller, smaller capacity at 100,000 a day. You know, my question is, does Pyara require a third FPSO? Um, and I think a lot of that will depend on, on how quickly Exxon wants to move on it. But they, they indicated they were going to probably appraise it yet this year, um, which makes me wonder, do they need another drilling rig? Right now, their plans don't call for another rig until 2019 for develop, uh, development drilling at Lisa. We have speculated a number of times that they would need a second rig uh, to meet their exploration commitment on Stabroke uh, and avoid another relinquishment, as, as happened in the past. Now, my, my understanding, based on some some uh, statements by the Guyanese government, is that that exploration commitment on Stabroke has been essentially suspended. At the same point, they've got 
the Snook Prospect, which is another uh, Cretaceous-aged exploration target that they'd like to get to. They still haven't gotten to Ranger, which is a Jurassic-aged exploration target that was originally thought to be their second exploration well. And you've got potential appraisal drilling at Pyara. There's talk of a Lisa 4 appraisal well. You know, even with these incredibly quick 20-some-day wells, um, you know, how much drilling can you get done with a single drilling rig? Mm, yeah. Can I jump in with one point about the FPSOs, sure. too? I mean, talking about a, you know, if, if you have a, you, you are still talking about an extremely new area, and if you have a 100,000 barrel per day unit, your likelihood of being able to um, deploy that somewhere else if things don't go as you plan um, is probably higher than it would be if you have one that is truly enormous you know if if something goes wrong then you might end up stuck with that so i think i can see why exxon would want to uh, take the approach of you know the buzzword these days is a phased development where they start out figure out how the reservoir performs and then assess next steps and how fast they want to and what kind of uh, capacity they want and need yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, just with and Exxon is a generally a conservative company. You know, they're not not one to splash out on on a you know something bigger like that if if there's a good way to phase it and to hedge their risk. Yeah, well, Lisa is still uh, kind of the jewel in that crown there. Um, and part of this release where they talked about the Pyara discovery is they uh, talked about the Lisa three. Uh, appraisal well and in fact have added to the resource estimate at Lisa after the successful appraisal. Um, you, Noah, had re- re- reported previously that Exxon was chasing maybe a deeper formation with this appraisal well and apparently they found what they were looking for. Um, so what does this mean for the larger Lisa field? Well, I mean, it's exactly that. It's, it is a larger Lisa um, and it was a large Lisa to begin with. And so, you know, at Lisa 3, we had reported that they had found, uh, you know, they had successfully appraised the initial or original Lisa, Lisa reservoir and as well had drilled this sort of deeper kind of exploration, kind of stratigraphic um, test or sort of rat hole down into this deeper formation that did show hydrocarbons as well. And But they hadn't really said, you know, is this something that could contribute to the Lisa development or is it just something that sort of informs their idea of the entire petroleum system in this, this basin, which as Kat pointed out, is incredibly underexplored for its size. Um, and so, you know, they said the formation is directly below it. I think it'll be interesting. Um, but this 100 to 150 million barrels they've added, that now bumps the Lisa resource estimate to something like, say, 1.1 to 1.2 billion barrels on the low end. I think Exxon had kind of conservatively put it at about a billion, maybe a little bit more. Uh, Hess had said that it was sort of pushing the upper end of that range, which, you know, then this additional uh, 100 to 150 million barrels would push it up something like 1.5 billion barrels. One of the things I'm really interested to know is kind of, so how much deeper did this did this exploration let go? And sort of where is that formation? And Exxon hasn't really given any um, sort of details on that. I guess one reason that I'm most interested in, so that, you know, these are wide column or long columns, but the Jurassic sits directly below the Cretaceous-aged Lisa Reservoir. And so ExxonMobil does have this Jurassic-aged Ranger prospect. 
you know, my question is what, what might the prospectivity of this deeper formation or the results from this deeper uh, test tell us about the prospectivity of the Jurassic? Oftentimes when you're going deeper in, uh, you know, in a basin, you're looking at gassier, uh, more gas-prone formations. Um, does the fact that this came out with 100 to 150 million barrels of, of recoverable black oil, does that tell us about the oil-prone prospectivity of the Jurassic offshore Guyana? You know, it, it's very dangerous to extrapolate this. Ranger you know, is further offshore, different play concept, things like that. But um, it's certainly the fact that they found oil, not gas, and the fact that they found hydrocarbons at all, it definitely speaks well, I think, to the overall um, petroleum system there in the Guyana. All right. Well, you can catch up on all the Guyana news at upstreamonline.com or in the archives of this podcast. We've talked about it at length. So go check that out at SoundCloud or at upstreamonline.com slash podcast. The Bit will be back right after this. Welcome back to The Bit. In any high-tech industry, the threat of litigation is never far behind. This is a new segment on The Bit called... I'll see you in court. Transocean has filed a lawsuit against rival driller Noble Corp over alleged patent infringement on five high-spec drill ships in the Gulf of Mexico. The lawsuit claims Noble willfully infringed on patents Transocean has owned since 2004, for what it calls dual-activity drilling. Dual-activity enables a rig to, for example, drill a top hole for a well while simultaneously running a blowout preventer stack. As the lawsuit notes, it's a technology that saves time and money in drilling offshore wells. Transocean contends that five drill ships Noble built between 2012 and 2014 have drilling packages that are a little too similar to its patented product. It's demanding a jury trial and is seeking damages. Noble says it disagrees with Transocean's contention and plans to defend its position. This is well-traversed territory for Transocean, which has been rather litigious in the past with its dual-activity patents. Most notably, in 2003, Transocean sued rival Global Santa Fe, claiming patent infringement on a trio of new builds. That case did go to court, and Transocean was handed victory in 2006. Several months later, the companies reached an out-of-court settlement. And just five months after that, Transocean absorbed Global Santa Fe in a $53 billion merger. With every offshore driller battered and bruised these days after a crushing downturn, consolidation in the sector is almost inevitable. Whether this lawsuit is a precursor to a bigger move by Transocean, we can only speculate. That does it for another episode of The Bit. Thanks for listening. The Bit is a production of NHST and is produced by me, Luke Johnson. RDG provides the bumper music. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at thebit at upstreamonline.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Be sure to check us out at upstreamonline.com, your home for independent oil and gas news. We'll be back next time with even more oil and gas news. But until then, keep your bit spinning to the right.
game changer. 